0: This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Todd, and our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR or Informa, its parent company. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. My name is Todd Willits, and I'm joined by EPFR's economist, Cameron Brandt. We'll walk you through what our teams were monitoring last week in the data EPFR tracks, as well as what we'll look for in the upcoming week. Cam, good morning. Good morning. Are you looking forward to the emergence of summer here in, in the northeast of the
1: U.S.? Uh, you mean the first puddle of sweat <laughs> extravaganza? Um, yeah, it's been sort of a strange year anyway. We had early burst of summer and then non, non-spring, non and now we're going straight to subtropical. So <laughs> staying flexible, as, as is the case with many things in the current environment, seems to be the way to go.
0: Yeah, well, at least you have some certainty on what's going to happen in the next few months, that it's going to be hot. Where we certainly don't see any certainty is the U.S. story. Uh, So in in the most recent week, maybe you can talk about it, but it seems like investors are torn with the U.S. and what the narrative is versus um, growth versus inflation, which will win out.
1: I think the first thing to say is that it's it's a real debate, an important one. Uh, There are strong opinions on both sides, Uh, certainly the uh, The Federal Reserve is strongly on the side that we're going to get growth with only a transitory burst in inflation. But uh, the people who express their views through the funds we track uh, have shown a persistent degree of skepticism about that narrative since the middle of last year. Um, And in the past week, um, he basically... um, People sort of added fuel to both sides of the scale. Uh, Biden's proposed budget is obviously even more expansionary, you know, big tick, another tick up for, for the growth story, um, but is going to make the economy, an already accelerating economy run hotter, which certainly has inflationary expectations. Um, you know, at the same time, the price of oil pushed over $70 a barrel for the first time in a year, um, and that's going to feed through, even though <laughs> the powers that be tend to try and strip that out as sort of a, a, volat- a volatile marker. It sort of affects uh, everyone's lives in many ways. Um, we've had a number of other reminders that supply chains remain frayed uh, and that, uh Capacity takes time to ramp back up on the supply side um, on the other hand on, on, the, on the longer run you can certainly make the case that demographics on both sides of the Atlantic weigh against uh, a sustained sort of 70s style burst of inflation because we have an aging population with a, a growing share moving into retirement um, spending less being more cautious and um, so it's certainly an unresolved uh, debate um, but you know the fact that uh, as i said <laughs> earlier um the, the investors whose sentiment we see uh have been so persistently skeptical certainly makes it uh, uh an important debate to stay on top of
0: well, on the other side of the coin, we have Europe, right? And I think we're starting to see the hints of a rebound story. Does inflation end up playing a big role there with any potential growth?
1: Yeah, well, I think the uh, the feeling is that um, Europe is certainly going to get a rebound. How can it not, given the depths that it's plumbed? Um, but uh, that uh, structurally... Um, uh inflation has been less of a problem there than it has here so uh, at least in the short run uh exposure to europe offers the happy prospect of uh uh getting getting growth uh without the quite the inflationary chaser
0: why is that the case in europe that inflation doesn't play as big a role
1: Again, that's another good question because, uh, you know, usually economies with structural rigidities uh, are more prone uh, to inflation. Um, But I think, honestly, it's a fact that uh, uh, people have been so beaten up by first the great financial crisis and now COVID uh, that... um, their inclination is to save for rainy days that seem to be coming thick and fast, which is frankly not usually the U.S. consumer's approach. It's like, oops, the sun's come out, <laughs> get something on the barbie. Um, so I think there's sort of a, you know a deflationary impulse on the consumer side that's going to be quite hard to overcome. So... Speaking
0: of one of our favorite topics that we haven't discussed in quite some time, SRIESG. I know we've seen a little bit of a loss of momentum for those funds in the past few weeks. Um, Do you think that this is related to what we're seeing around inflation, or is there another narrative that's emerging with those funds?
1: Certainly, there's a a couple of narratives going, and, and the one you mentioned is certainly playing a role. Uh, The the fear that inflation will uh, persist at higher levels, triggering rate hikes that boost the cost of capital for the tech sector um, is is definitely weighing on sentiment. Um, But uh, there's also a sharpening debate around what is legitimately an ESG, SRI fund and stock, uh, this sort of concern about what people call greenwashing, and uh, there are moves afoot. Uh, I, I think one of the rating agencies is about to uh, unveil their criteria for uh, for what uh, an SRIESG fund uh, needs to do to credibly have that label, which I am <laughs> certain is causing ripples of unease uh, through that sector. But many
0: people would argue that it's a long time coming as well.
1: Yes, I think that's true uh and and on, on the other side of the coin there's no way you can ignore the sort of tremendous regulatory and political tailwinds that that whole <laughs> um, theme has picked up the um, you know, the the u s budget packages large chunks of all the ones we've seen certainly since Biden assumed office are aimed at that so I think uh though. There the will probably be uh, some caution, but uh, ESG is, frankly, the new privileged asset class, so people are unlikely to stray too far from it.
0: What are some examples of similarly privileged asset classes from prior years that you can think back to?
1: One of the classic ones is real estate. Um, <laughs> Uh, My home is my castle. Um, It's the easiest uh, asset class, certainly, for um, uh, policymakers to boost the value of and sort of create a a wealth effect, which has both economic and political benefits. Uh, You choose which was the more important. Um, And certainly in the US, the tax code remains heavily biased in support. so uh, that, that, that's the obvious one. I think tech for a while has been viewed as one.
0: Even into this year, really?
1: Even into this year, uh, th- that is beginning to erode. But uh, they certainly s- they gave the impression of sort of flying above the usual regulatory and taxation thickets that <laughs> so many other uh, sectors have to navigate at the ground level.
0: So, Kim, what are you and your team looking at in this upcoming week?
1: So, interestingly, we are going to be taking uh, another look at the SRI ESG flows and and fund groupings, uh, especially in the light of uh, of expected tightening in criteria. And uh, we are continuing to dive into the new uh, joint EPFR-Barclay hedge Uh, hedge fund flows data set that uh, is close to launch.
0: Great. Thanks, Cam. Have a great week.
1: Yep, I will. Thanks for
0: listening to the EPFR Exchange podcast. For more information or to suggest a topic for a future podcast, please visit epfr.com slash podcast.